0: Hi, this is your dream chaser, Jeff Brown, and you're listening to Chasing Dreams with Amy J.
1: Welcome to Chasing Dreams podcast with Amy J. Amy believes that realizing a life without regrets is achieved by taking chances, Chasing your dreams, making moves, and overcoming your doubts. The Chasing Dreams podcast will help you overcome life's obstacles, believe in your potential, and inspire you to face your fears. And now here's the woman who is passionately pursuing her dreams, Amy J. Hey,
2: Dream Chasers. This is Amy J. And you are listening to what I cannot believe is episode 99. That's right, guys. The last of the two digits. We are here. Uh, Not sure how it happened. I feel like we just started. But here we are. And I have a wonderful guest for you. His name is Jeff Brown. He is the host and creator of the Read to Lead podcast, a top ranked business and career podcast in iTunes. He spent 26 years in radio and six of those years he co-hosted an award winning and nationally syndicated morning show. Using his background and talents, Jeff's mission is to help you bridge the gap between intentionality and implementation. He does this through public speaking, mentoring, teaching, and most often through the Read to Lead podcast. Jeff is a firm believer in the mantra, leaders read and readers lead. And Jeff is actually one of the reasons we are here today, guys, to have this episode. And I just told him prior to this, um, he helped me in trying to do uh, learning more about interviewing and how to improve podcasts. And we had a conversation where I was trying to see find a coach to help me out. Unfortunately, finances doesn't allow that sometimes, but he still gave me enough information and knowledge to bring me here where we are today. So I had to thank him, and I, it was really important for me to get him here for 99 and was mm-hmm. able to. Jeff, welcome to the show.
0: Well, thank you, Amy. Uh, I'm honored uh, to be here and, and really appreciate uh, what you just uh, shared, I, I try to be uh, as generous as I can most of the time. I don't always feel like I accomplish that, but I was excited to learn that that uh, you know, a couple of years ago, or whenever that was, we last met, that you felt like I uh, didn't hold back, uh, despite the fact we weren't able to work together. That I was still able to to help, because that's that to me is important, because uh, I think I think that's what this is all about ultimately.
2: Yeah, and you're still sharing your gifts. I mean, we also. Um, we've met several times and and we've we've had conversations and you 've given value every time we have that conversation oh, Thank you we were talking uh just off off the line before we started how sometimes we don 't realize the things we do and the impact we have mm. and sometimes it just kind of continues and you I think may not understand the impact you have with the actions you do uh You have a number of fans and followers on your social media and Redelete stuff, but mm. I am definitely one of them.
0: Mm. Well, thank you. That, that just warms my heart. I appreciate that very, very much.
2: <laughs> and guys, doesn't Jeff have a, a voice for voiceover? <laughs> he has one of those voices. So Jeff, you have a voice for voiceover, but also for radio, which you spent mm. 26 years in. Mm. How, how do you even get into that? Was that a out of college thing? Was that college radio? How did that begin?
0: You know, it's hard. It might be hard to believe. I don't know. But it it was by accident, really. It wasn't uh, planned. Uh, My uh, career path was determined or was determined at that time to have been something else. I was going to be a music teacher. And that's what I went to college for. I had dabbled with some radio classes in high school. My high school had a radio station and I wanted to take some more classes along that path. But I had a guidance counselor taught me out of it because at that time, radio wasn't a part of the long term plans. It's like, oh, you don't need to take those classes. And so I never was a part of that culture at my high school, never got to be on the high school radio station or anything like that. So I missed out on all that. Well, after two or three years uh, in college as a music education major, I, I had come to the realization that that was not something I ultimately wanted to do mm-hmm. for the rest of my life. It was a path I had gone on because others had said, well, that's what you probably should do. Uh, you know, you're a good uh, you're a solid instrumentalist and you have this you know, innate gift for understanding music and reading music, et cetera, et cetera. And so I went down that road. But after about two, two and a half years, I dropped out and was out of college for about three years before eventually going back and getting a, deg- a degree, just a general business degree. But in that three years where I had dropped out, I came across uh, upon this this sort of new startup school for folks wanting to get into radio that was a six month sort of crash course In radio, we didn't have the internet back then. There weren't any online courses. This was an in-person course. I was the first student ever to sign up for this. I think it was called Professional Broadcasters Institute, and uh, had my crash course in radio. And six months later, I finished the course. The first person ever graduate from the school, and uh, landed my first job in radio. And as embarrassing it is for me to admit, because it's going to make me sound really old, that all happened in 1987. And next month, actually, this this uh, holiday uh, that we're celebrating this year, July Fourth of 2017, will be the 30th anniversary of my first day on the on, on a real job in radio. It was July Fourth, 1987. So we're right at the, right at that point now.
2: Congratulations! It's <laughs> quite a <the> milestone. <laughs>
0: it's been a long time.
2: It it has, but. Let me ask you something. At that time, was broadcasting something that was easily easy to get into? Because, yeah, you took the course. You learned everything. But what, was finding a position or opening something that was easy?
0: Well, getting it wasn't necessarily the hardest part. Keeping it was the oh. hardest part. As funny as that sounds, uh, the person running the school that I, that I joined, a, a part of the attraction was uh, guaranteed placement. And so he, he was a former radio guy himself, the guy heading up to school and, and he had connections and, and if he felt you were a solid student, he could, he could see that you got placed somewhere. And I got, you know, a part-time job. It was an hour and 15 or so minutes away from my house. So it was in another town. I, I didn't move there, but I made the commute every weekend and sometimes would get a hotel and spend the night so I wouldn't have to drive back home and then do my shift the next day. And then everything I made from that weekend would go to pay my hotel bill. So I was just, you know, paying my dues, if you will. I mean, there are a lot of gatekeepers, uh, in traditional media, there always have been. And so I got a leg up on that by attending that school. Now, again, the hard part though is keeping it because nine months later I was fired from my first job. In fact, I've been fired from just about every radio job I've ever had except for, I think one Wow. Uh, and I've, I've had a uh, half a dozen or so over the years. And and that's kind of the nature of, of the business. Um, it's very much a, or can be a "what have you done for me lately" kind of business, and your ratings are very important. And my first job that I lost, it was really just kind of dumb moves on my part more than anything. It wasn't that, you know, I wasn't pulling my weight or wasn't uh, you know doing a, a good job on the air necessarily. It was just I I did stupid stuff. I did stuff that the market wasn't ready for. You know, uh, the things that I tried to do on the air were were sometimes you know, pushing the envelope a little bit. And so after about nine months of that, they got tired of me. And You're so a rebel. I was a bit of a rebel. <laughs> in fact, they told me <laughs> when they let me go that I should go work for a morning team that was headquartered in Indianapolis that later would go on to syndication and be nationally known. But they were huge in my hometown of Indianapolis. And I was told I should go try to get a job with that team. And I, I thought that was a major that's compliment. A compliment. They didn't, they didn't yeah. mean it as a compliment necessarily. No. <laughs> I was like, "That's awesome." I, you know, I never did end up doing that, but uh, I landed on my feet a couple weeks later with my second radio job, and and it, you know, it it sort of snowballed from there. I was able to stay in the medium, obviously, for a long time, but well, I made I made some dumb moves along the way for sure.
2: Well, that's the interesting part. Being, I'm going to call it fickle, but it, it's not that it's fickle. It's just the nature of the business. But for 26 years you did this, where you you kind of were fighting for your job every day. Essentially, it it Mm. seems like it's kind of that kind of a life to stay on and and keep your job. I'm I'm guessing and hoping that you loved it.
0: I did. Yeah, the first 21 or so of those 26 years, I was on the air. Mm -hmm. And that's why I got into it to begin with. And the last six years on the air, as you mentioned, at the beginning was uh, as part of a, a, a morning show that I really enjoyed. And then my last five years in radio, I was behind the scenes and off the air. And that, that was by choice. I wanted to come off the air. i I'd, I'd done it for a long time. And I you know, over, over a, that stretch of time, over a 20, 21 year period, I kind of realized that being on the air meant being kind of metaphorically speaking, it anyway, would chained to that room. You know, you were, you had to be in that studio. Four or, or five hours every day, you were on the air. Uh, you couldn't be at your desk. You couldn't, you know, be enjoying a meal with somebody. You could, you know, it, you, you didn't have a lot of freedom because you were you were stuck doing that show four or five hours every single day. And so after 21 years, of that, I was like, you know, I I need I need some freedom. I need to be able to get out more. I need to I need to <laughs> right. You couldn't work a remote.
2: So <laughs> like, let me take this from my my office at home. Yeah, you couldn't do that back then.
0: But no, no that that wasn't an option. No.
2: So when you when you first started it, did did it click with you that this is something I love and, and want to do when you took that course at that school?
0: Yeah. And I'd always had a fascination okay. with with radio. And, and as I mentioned, I had kind of started going down that path in high school and just wasn't confident that's ultimately where I was going to go. So guidance counselors taught me out of it. But, you know, as a kid, I used to, you know, you know, pretend I was a DJ in my bedroom and I had a turntable <laughs> and an, then is going to really date me here, an eight track player and an, and an analog radio dial. And I used to go back and forth and, and pretend to be a DJ and record my, I was fascinated with recording and I had a, got a tape recorder for Christmas one year. And so all of that, all that fascinated me a great deal. And so as I was, as I was going through that, that, that course, that sort of crash course, I, I I was really excited about, you know, the potential of that industry and, and, and my place in it, ultimately.
2: And so I guess that's the, the thing that interests me is the fact that you were doing something you loved despite the fact that every day or, you know, whatever the risk is of, of keeping your job, that didn't bother you because you enjoyed what you were doing. Is that safe to say?
0: Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, you, you kind of you kind of learned to put that that aside and just, you know, not worry about that because, you know, it's out of your control. You know that, you know, listeners may love you one day and they may, uh you know, uh, decide that you're not uh the, you know, all that in a bag of chips a, a couple of years later. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's just, you know, that's, you know, you, you use the word fickle. I think that's a good word to describe it. Tastes are fickle. Listeners can be fickle uh, management can be fickle. Um, formats can be fickle. All those things can change. And, you know, a radio station could change formats one day and, and decide that the entire on-air team is no longer appropriate for the new format. You know, I mean, it could be things like that. And so, uh, you just kind of learn to just go with it and, and and be confident enough in your, yourself and your abilities that if something like that does happen, you can land on your feet somewhere else. And I was fortunate enough to be able to do that a few times.
2: Yeah. And be able to go out on your own note it sounds like after 26 years, go out on your own choice on top. And so when you left, did you have an idea of what you wanted to do when you left? Were you going to retire and just take off for vacations (laughs) to catch up now that you had that freedom?
0: Well, see, that's, that's the funny thing. I didn't go out uh, on my own accord. I mean, I had uh, plans uh, and I talked to my wife about the possibility of me leaving at some point in the near future. And, uh, we were making sort of plans for, you know, what that might look like a few mm-hmm. months down the road. And uh, before we had a chance to really solidify any of that, uh, the comp- company I was working for uh, had some restructuring and they let three or four people go on the same day. I was one of those people. Uh, but when that happened, because of what I had been planning, there was never any thought of, oh, I'm going to go try to find another radio job. It was no, this is my, this is this is my push from the nest. This is my sign, right? <laughs> you know, this is, it's earlier is, than you
2: predicted, but
0: yeah, earlier than I predicted, but, but this is what, this is what's supposed to happen. And so, you know, I moved my timeline up a little bit. Um, and that was, that was four years ago last week actually. And, um, I, uh, I had already started planning doing a podcast and so Uh, That launched like a month from from when I uh, was let go that last time. And I went ahead with that, didn't know what that was going to become and didn't have any designs or anything uh, thinking along the lines that I would monetize that eventually in some way or coach other people. And none of that was even on my radar at the time. It was just this was going to be a labor of love that I would do while I figure out everything else.
2: The great part is, is that you're continuing to use the skills you have and what you learn from radio as you're podcasting. But it's a new medium. It's something new that you were probably picking up. Or were you, were you podcasting as you were kind of winding down and making these plans? Were you looking into it? I mean, what was it like trying to pick up a new skill?
0: Yeah, I uh, there were certainly uh, and there are certainly a lot of uh, transferable skills. That's for sure. But there were still some things I didn't know. I, mm-hmm. Some things I had to learn uh, about the about the process. But um, I had the idea initially. The idea in around March of 2013. And then in April of of 2013, I started making plans and doing research and kind of validating my my idea. And then in May, I did things like purchase the equipment and get things set up and uh, started scheduling some interviews. And then in June, I started doing uh, some of those interviews. Uh, And then in July of that year, I launched. And so it was very methodical, one step at a time. First, we're going to do this. Then we're going to do this. And I didn't get in a hurry or anything like that about it. I just, you know, developed a a plan and worked from that plan and uh, tried to when I launched sort of, as I say, have all my ducks in a row and felt like when I launched that I had a pretty solid um, plan in place that was that was going to going to last for a while.
2: And it has, I
0: mean, (laughs) so far,
2: (laughs) (laughs) knock on wood. But from that has also come other things uh, within Mm -hmm. podcasting, which did you anticipate Coaching and, and helping other podcasters? Was that something that was anticipated or just a, a blessed offshoot?
0: A blessed offshoot. I didn't anticipate it at all, honestly. In fact, it took some poking and prodding from others around me to convince me to actually step out and do it. And, and so I started it kind of reluctantly, Amy, to be completely honest with you. um, When I first stepped out on my own, I right off the bat started. Doing something full time that I'd been doing in the margins of life when I had a full time job, and that thing I'd been working on, sort of that side hustle, involved uh, websites and, in, in, in part, mobile apps for small businesses, businesses who felt like they couldn't play the app game because they didn't have enough money for things like that, and I kind of tried to to bring that to smaller businesses, mom and pop places, and 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 help them figure out ways they could more, you know, intimately engage with their with their customers, and, and mobile was one of those ways. And so when I first got let go for the first six or eight months, I jumped into that head first to kind of you know, keep my head above water until I was able to figure things out. And I was fortunate right before all this happened, right before uh, I left that last job to be a part of a, a, a master uh, mastermind group that only recently came to an end with just two other guys. And uh, these two guys uh, were great uh, around six months into this process of really pushing me to do this, mm-hmm. um, I, I I really didn't think I wanted to at first. I mean, I, I respected folks like John Lee Dumas and who was stepping out in that into that space at the time, and Cliff Ravenscraft, and you know Pat Flynn has 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 done a lot for podcasters. And sure. I thought, yeah, we don't need me. We don't need another person. We've got these folks over here doing a great job. You know, what what do I have to offer? That uh, what ground can I cover that they haven't? And and these guys convinced me that because in part my my unique radio background and experience. I had a lot supposedly to bring to the table and, and to teach and, and to show people and things that nobody else was, was doing. And so that's kind of what I concentrated on in the very beginning. A lot of my early online courses and teaching and coaching and things of that nature centered around uh, presentation and structuring of content and how to sound better than most people do out of the gate when you first launched it, you know, sound like you've been doing it for a while. Interviewing was a big focus of the process as well, because those were specific areas that others weren't necessarily touching on that I felt like I could speak to because of that, that experience. So because of their poking and prodding, I began to venture out into that and, um, it sort of snowballed, uh, from there.
2: Which I'm thankful for because, you know, interviewing (laughs) is one of the things that led me to talk to you for the most part, especially because of your background. But I kind of want to talk a little bit about the people you surrounded yourself with. I Mm. mean, it sounds like, one of the things uh, you hear, you know, surround yourself with positive people, people who support you. And yeah. so you went and started or joined a mastermind. Was there a reason for that?
0: Yeah. At the at the time I did, I, I had begun those conversations with my wife. I mentioned a moment ago, mm-hmm. uh, you know, possibly leaving Radeon. I didn't really know what that would look like. And I wasn't 100% sure what I wanted to do. It took me some time to figure that out but I knew I was going to need a support system of other folks that I respected. And, um, one of the other guys, uh, uh, worked for the same company I worked for in another state or another city. Um, and then the other guy was somebody he knew. And so, uh, but, but he also had a lot of talents and, and expertise that I, in areas that I did not have any. And so I saw that as attractive for me personally. I felt like I could bring something to the table for them. And, um, I just knew uh, because of the respect I had for these folks that, um, they, they would tell they would, they would speak truth to me. They would tell me when I'm, you know, making a mistake or when I'm listening to the wrong voices in my head or, or, uh, when I'm, you know, missing, uh, something that may be obvious to them and that and the, I would do the same for them. And so as, as I was planning out some of those, so the, the early timelines with my wife, I, I began, sort of talking to some of my, my close uh, colleagues about some of this. And one of them said, Hey, I'm thinking about starting a mastermind. I'd love to have you in it. I've got one other person in mind. Would you be interested? Yes, I would. And that's how that started that simply. And it, like I said, it only recently ended, um, just sort of dissipated over time just because we, the three of us have, have, uh, drifted in the sense that, um, we're in different places than we, than we were then. And so, um, everything I think we could help each other with, with we've done. And so it's time to, for us to move on and find another group as individuals. Uh, but for that time we were together, it was fantastic. Um, and, and, and I owe a lot of my success to those two people as much as anybody.
2: Would you recommend something like a mastermind or someone chasing their dreams to surround themselves with people like that and have some kind of relationship in that way?
0: Absolutely. I I would recommend that. Um, I I don't, I don't know that you can be successful unless you're willing to spend a lot of time in rooms where you're not the smartest person. When I was young, I was very naive and I would constantly try to put myself in a position, at least to feel, um, this wasn't necessarily always true, but to put myself in a position where, where I felt like I was the most talented person in the room or the smartest person in the room. Uh, and that necessitated me limiting the, the groups of people I hung around, as you might imagine. <laughs> right? I fear it can happen. But that gave me confidence in my own abilities, but it also limited me. That's what I didn't realize when I was young, was it, it's, it uh, stunted any growth I might have otherwise uh, seen. And, and if I've learned anything in the last 30 years, it's that the, that's the worst thing you can do, the best thing you can do is surround yourself with people who are smarter than you. Uh, as the saying goes, if you are the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. Mm-hmm. It just took me a long time to to figure that out.
2: The other thing that I, that I thought was interesting, though, is that you you guys dissipated your mastermind. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the thing sometimes people forget is that's okay yeah. to do. and And you talked about the fact that you guys got the most out of each other. How did you realize that? Is that something that just kind of comes naturally, or is a conversation you have with one another?
0: Well, it, it can happen a couple of different ways. Uh, some groups I've been a part of are highly structured, and I've actually led a couple of my own where, you know, there was a structure and a clock, and and you know, different things that we did for the hour that we were together were actually uh, timed, and we made sure that everybody, you know, had equal time and that sort of thing, and then. Others like this, this one I mentioned that I was a part of, like the first one ever was a little more loose. It was just three of us. Right. And so it didn't have to be quite as, as structured. And we would oftentimes, you know, uh, still come with, with things we wanted to accomplish things that we would share with one another that we were working on. And, uh, through continu- uh, continued, communication, we would make sure that we were checking in with the other two, uh, in the group to make sure that they were, following up on their on on following through on their promises and meeting deadlines. And we knew when we came together every Monday evening that uh, those things we mentioned last time we were going to be asked about and we were going to be asked, how have you been doing on that and how far have you gotten on that plan? And so there was sort of a a built in, um, I guess, accountability um, is one way to put it. And um, again, they had talents. I didn't. They were they were gifted in, in areas in ways that I wasn't and and that was tremendous because you know for example when it comes to writing um email sequences for example i just hate doing that and i don't even know where to begin it just i look mm-hmm. at the blank page and i just my eyes glaze over
2: it's not your forte
0: not my forte one of the two guys is highly gifted in that area so he he would go so far as to sometimes even write you know an email for me and say here's 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 how i would approach this or he would give me you know uh, places from which to start and and just kind of uh you know push me uh down the hill to give me some momentum sort of thing and so that things like that to me were were just tremendous to have, especially you know in in areas where I just felt like were not my gift
2: and did you feel that you were contributing as well because sometimes i I know that if I'm in a group, I feel bad that i that I'm taking and I'm mm-hmm. not giving and I want to not be in that group because I feel like I'm taking advantage of it. Have you ever felt like that? Or
0: I have. I have. And, and that, that was, uh, that's been a struggle for me. And I think we're, mm-hmm. we're all our own worst enemy. And we yes. always feel like, in fact, I was just, um, as this old uh, mastermind is, is coming to an end, I was just recently asked to participate in a new one that I'm really excited about. But I look around the proverbial room and I'm like, oh boy.
2: <laughs> here we are again.
0: Uh, here we are again. What, what, what do I possibly have to offer them is kind of where my mind starts going. And I think that's just, that's self-doubt creeping in. That's imposter syndrome, sure. syndrome creeping in. And so I, I've learned uh, a couple of things. Uh, and, and these are these will sound like really simple, like too simple, but they really, really work. What the other members of your mastermind group want from you is predominantly two things. And I learned this from a book I read called The Inspiration Code by Christy Hedges. Uh, And and she's talking about how there's essentially a, a formula or a code to great conversations that can inspire your team. And if you'll follow this quote unquote formula, you'll inspire more people more often. And so from that book, I've learned these two things. That the, the two things you can do for other members of your mastermind group or any team you're leading or a part of is to, number one, be present. Oftentimes when I would meet with these two guys, I mentioned a moment ago, it was virtual uh, meetings, but we could see one another. And the, by being present, I mean blocking out distractions uh, letting others know who might otherwise interrupt you, that this is precious and sacred time and mm-hmm. that interruption should be kept to a minimum, whether that's family or phone calls or whatever.
2: Putting your phone down.
0: Putting your, your phone shouldn't even be on the on the desk. I mean, you it, it really needs to be respected. They need to know that you're present. And that's especially important to the other members when they're talking and sharing their struggles. Uh, and being present is going to help you uh, master uh, master the other thing I was, I was getting at, and that's just listening, just letting the conversation flow and go where it goes. And if you are truly present and not letting other things distract you and they can see that and you're actually listening without thinking about what you're going to say next, but just hearing what they're saying, those are two of the best things you can do. And if you can bring those to your mastermind group, even if you feel like you don't otherwise bring a whole lot of talent, If you can bring those things, the other members of the group will appreciate you for for being there and will leave your meetings feeling like you've contributed, even though you might walk away and feel like, gosh, I didn't do anything but listen. That will be something they, and it's the, the case with most human beings, that will be something that they so rarely get. And just to walk away knowing you were present and you were listening will mean the world.
2: That's actually really great advice because I think a lot of us, giving someone your time is precious. And we, we, we find, man, he listened to me. He gave me (laughs) his time, his precious time, you know, and attention. Mm -hmm. And it just feels, makes me feel good.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, it really does.
2: I think when it comes to us though, saying it, we forget that for, for whatever reason, you know, we're like, it's just me though. But if Mm -hmm. someone else does it for us, we're like, he's an angel. God (laughs) bless that guy. But when it's us, it's, it's weird how that is that, you know,
1: mm.
2: when it comes to someone else, if you put yourself in someone else's shoes, you can give the best advice. But taking it, it's entirely different and just as difficult. But that's actually mm. something, you know, speaking of the Inspiration Code, I believe that was one of your, an episode or I saw it on your newsletter. I believe I read I uh, heard you talking about the Inspiration Code, which I think was featured on the Read to Lead podcast. Am I right about that?
0: Well, you, you're a you're a, a fortune teller because I'm actually going to be interviewing the author on that's Friday. That's what it was. I was
2: like, I know, I've, I I know, I <laughs> we talked about this somehow. I, I connected you and in the Inspiration Code. Uh, so, yeah. So I'm. That's I'm, exactly right. That's actually something really cool because your read, to lead podcast, and your mantra of leaders read, readers lead. What brought that about?
0: Mm. Yeah, good question. Um, I, I, I'm a big fan of a guy named Michael Hyatt and uh have followed his blog for uh well before anybody else hardly was blogging he was he was he was in the forefront of blogging and i live in nashville he lives in nashville and i was familiar with him as uh at the time he was ceo of a, a publishing uh book publishing company called thomas nelson and followed him uh while well, he still worked there then when he left and then he started a podcast and something he said once just stuck with me. And I, I believe he was quoting someone else. Uh, maybe it was uh, uh, original to him. I, I, I don't remember for sure. Uh, but it was that leaders read, readers lead mantra. Um, and that just always, always stuck with me. And when I came up with the idea to start my podcast, I thought to myself that the, the the name of the show needs to come out of that mantra, needs to come from that somehow, way, And so I just uh, I just shortened it. I guess you could say "read to lead," uh, just a, an abbreviated version of that same sort of concept and and ideas. And I credit Michael with you know having inspired uh, that name and and sort of honing in on really what I wanted to do a podcast about. Because frankly, Amy, I thought about doing a podcast several years mm-hmm. before I ever before I ever did one. Uh, and the reason I hesitated was because I spent the longest time thinking, "What in the world would I do a podcast about?" Yeah. I don't know. You know, I, I didn't know even where to start. And, and things like that mantra and um, just my love for reading, they kind of crashed into one another. And I thought, gosh, this, this idea I've been looking for for a podcast has been under my nose all this time. I just didn't recognize it. And I think that's the case for a lot of us. Uh, I found in t- attending some podcast conferences recently that one of the biggest areas of struggle for people, they know they want to start a podcast and they have a good idea of the things they need to do to make that happen but many of them, more so than I realized, aren't really sure what to do a podcast about. They know they've got it in them, but they haven't pinpointed that just yet.
2: That's amazing. And (laughs) you're now, as of this recording, you are at 173 episodes. Mm -hmm. And so is it safe to say that's 173 books you've discussed?
0: Uh, Pretty close. Yeah, there's been a handful of solo episodes in there where I've not interviewed somebody, where it was just me, but those are rare. Mm-hmm. And there's been a couple of um, couple of episodes where I've featured, say, you know, my favorite podcasts that happen to be uh, hosted by authors. I've done some like, you know, year-end special episodes, things like that. But for the most part, it's been an author interview. So out of those 173, probably 150 or so, um, have been have been author interviews
2: have you read those books one hundred and fifty
0: yes, I have now i, I don 't always finish every single book i sure. when I first started my show i I thought I had to mm-hmm. and I had to ask a question at least one question out of every chapter and oh, wow. after, after a while, I realized, well that 's not really uh, where I need to focus i need to I need to pull them key insights and main ideas and so and basically, what I do is I start reading and as I read and questions that I want to ask or things I want to dig into come to me, I write those things down. And generally an interview that I do might consist of 12 to 15 or so questions. And what I do is once I get to the point where I have that many questions, I give myself permission to stop reading if I need to move on to other things. If if I don't have anything pressing, I can you know, move right along. But I give myself permission to stop and so sometimes I might read 6 chapters uh, of a 10 chapter book before I get to 15 let's say questions other times I might read 2 chapters and have 15 questions and so wow. uh, you know it just depends on on the book and the density of the book and all that so um uh, it varies how much of a book I read varies but I I have uh, delved pretty heavily into uh most all of those books uh, with very very few exceptions um, there, there are one or two instances where uh, my interview ended up happening before the book got into my hands mm-hmm. but but those are those are tough interviews to do for me, uh, especially uh, mm-hmm. when I base my questions off my reading, as you might imagine. Uh, but I made a couple of exceptions along the way because they were authors who I'd, whose work i 'd known for years, Chris Brogan was one uh, Seth Godin was another. But I based my questions off of, in some cases, I had chapter titles I could go from and other cases I could look at their blog and any author is also blogging about his or her book as and as they're in the process of writing it. And I could go back and and look at blog posts and come up with questions that way. But other than those two instances I can think of, yeah, I've 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 read them all.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. But it's probably also your work ethic. But you actually said something I want to touch on real quick. You gave yourself permission. Mm. What does that mean? Like, I mean, did you asked yourself if that was okay. Is that something <laughs> you typically do? I, I'm familiar with the concept, but I'm not sure a lot of people understand yeah. that concept of giving yourself permission. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, yeah. That's that's a great question. I, I hadn't really thought about that, but you're probably right. That may be foreign to a lot of folks. Um, yeah, I used to believe that, you know, unless I read a book from cover to cover, and finished it 100%. Then I wasn't allowed to say, "Well, I read such and such book." If I was going to mention a book in conversation or or what have you, I would have to say, "Well, I you know I I, I got through the first eight of, of ten chapters, but I didn't read the whole thing." Like 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 anybody cares, right? But I didn't feel like I could I could say I've read the book unless I'd finished the book. And I came to realize over time that with with nonfiction, anyway. Uh, that's not necessarily the case. uh, Not every word in every nonfiction book is critical to our personal growth and to improving our leadership skills. There may be concepts the book discusses that we're well-versed in, you know, so if that's the case, why would you spend your time necessarily, if you didn't have a lot of time, reading about something you already knew intimately when you could be spending that time learning something new, right? And so, I began over time thinking and and allowing myself to to still say, and not like I'm having conversations with people about this all the time, but I allowed myself to still feel and say, well, if if I've if I've picked up that book, if I've read most of it, if if I've conducted an interview on it, uh, etc., I, I I've read that book. It's 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 it doesn't have to be read cover to cover. It doesn't mean I haven't read it. Uh, I can say I've read that book. And so it was just about me getting over this mental hurdle of what reading really was, as, uh, particularly in the in the nonfiction space. And I just always had this mentality for whatever reason that I had to get all the way through it. And if not, then I had somehow let the author down or failed in some way. And I just had to let go of that. And the way I let go of that, let, let, let go of that was just by saying you know, sort of to myself, it's okay. Uh, it's all right if you don't get all the way through it. No one's going to, no one's counting the pages. No one's looking over your shoulder. Um, no one's going to think any less of you because you didn't read uh, word one to, to, you know, word 70,000 or whatever. So.
2: Yeah. And that's, it's such a powerful concept, you know, giving yourself permission and something I think a lot of us need to do more of is giving yourself permission to dream, to chase your dream or even, you know, small things like yes, you read the book. You can stop reading now. It's okay.
0: (laughs) And I I think that that goes for a lot of things. I think you hit on something there. Um, uh, I've I've had to learn over the years to um, give myself permission to do a lot of things I didn't necessarily feel ready uh, to do. And and a lot of us, I think, spend our lives waiting for somebody to wave the magic wand or dub us worthy to be doing this thing or that thing. And Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I mentioned traditional media and oftentimes there are gatekeepers whose job it is to keep you out, you know, and and you have to get permission from them to do what it is you want to do. But We live in a world today where that's less and less necessary for, you know, for doing the kinds of things, kinds of things you're doing. You don't need somebody else's permission to do that. Likewise, for me, I don't need somebody else's permission, but there are still things we run up against and and it happens to me a lot where I I start that doubt creeps in that this imposter syndrome again comes back and you're like, well. Who are you to do that? Or you're not as good at that as as these other people over here, or maybe you're not as good at that as you think you are. Yeah. And so we sit back and go, well, then I'm not going to do that thing because I'm not ready. If I can just get to the point where I believe in myself enough, uh, then I can go do that thing. And I love something that Seth Godin said on my show once that applies to this. He says, "Uh, we don't take action because we believe. That's backwards. We actually believe because we take action. So rather than thinking that before you take action, you've got to build up enough belief in yourself to do this thing or that thing. Seth says, just start doing it. And and Jeff Goins, a friend of mine, has just released a book called Real Artists Don't Starve that, that delves into this a little bit uh, as well. Instead, uh, just start doing it. Uh, just you know if you want to be a writer just start writing as as jeff puts it and over time other people will start looking at you through a different lens that's and that lens is the lens of in this case a writer and as people do that guess what it starts rubbing off on you and so take the action and 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 have the faith that the belief will follow rather than trying to start with the belief And hoping that you drum up enough of it that you get the courage to take action. And and Seth punctuated that with these simple words. He says, do first, believe second. That's deep. (laughs) Isn't it, though? And it's not my words, (laughs) Seth Godin's words. And it's it's impacted me greatly.
2: I I can see why. Four words, four simple words. (laughs) Uh, Those are great words to, like, end it on. But we can't just yet. (laughs) Before we can, Jeff, we need your words on w- on what is one thing on this 99th episode when dream chasers are listening what is one action you would tell them to take today to chase their dreams
0: well i i, th- I think uh, it dovetails with what i was just talking about mm-hmm. with seth this uh, this idea of of acting first and and just um knowing that over time these little baby steps that you take though they may not feel like they're making a big difference now, know that as they add up, uh, they will. I think a lot of podcasters miss this. You're an example of somebody who hasn't missed this. I'm sure there were times over the last 99 episodes where you considered, you know, should I still be doing this? Is Mm -hmm. anybody anybody listening? Should I throw in the towel? I know I had those uh, feelings myself. Yeah. And as you do it more and more, episode after episode, in the case of my friend Jeff Goins I mentioned a moment ago, he decided, you know, I'm just going to start writing every day. And he did that for about two years. John Grissom, the you know the author of A Time to Kill and The Firm, uh, he, he was a lawyer. And, and Jeff talks about that in his, in his book. He, he wrote every day. He wrote a page a day for two years and published A Time to Kill and and, and hardly anybody bought it. But he thought, you know, that was fun. Uh, Let's do it again. And so he started writing every day again for about a year the second time. And he wrote The Firm and that got published and picked up. And it was a a runaway bestseller. And then they came back, I think, and re-released A Time to Kill and it did better. Um, And it was after I think a total of about four years of doing this that John finally went, you know what? I think I'm going to quit my day job and I'm just going to be a full-time writer. He didn't. He didn't just. You know. You hear that phrase, you know, take the leap. You know.
2: Sure. Yeah. 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 He didn't
0: do that. Didn't do anything like that. He. He did. Mm-hmm. T- took baby steps. Jeff did that. Um. I think I did that in a lot of ways. You've been doing that with every episode you release. That's another step sort towards something even grander and 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 more awesome than what you're already doing. And I think a lot of people miss that they want the success right now and they don't understand these little things that you do day to day. I read the book, uh, the Twelve Week Year. If you don't do anything else in, in regard to this, read the book, the Twelve Week Year, and it talks about how you should think about uh, a twelve-week period, a quarter as a year, um, a month is a quarter, um, a week is a month, a day is a week, and when you start thinking about time in in those terms, suddenly what that does for you is the five things you do today, you see how that impacts weeks from now, much more readily, much more easily. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so it, it, if you can break down your year into 12-week into increments and think of, of a year in that sense as a 12-week period and set your goals that way and work backwards from that 12 weeks uh, to today, then I think that's going to have a huge impact on seeing these little things that you do day to day, how they affect the big things that you really want to accomplish.
2: I love that, and I love that recommendation. I'm, I am a fan of the twelve-week year.
0: It's awesome. a very
2: powerful book. Also, again, a simple concept mm-hmm. of you know why wait a year, right? To do right. everything when you can get it done in twelve weeks. Because I mean, I think if you think about it, we we, we do it to, and to tend to delay things, push things off, and it's a very powerful book. Guys, the link. For that uh, will be in the show notes. You can check it out there. Uh, Jeff, thank you so much for coming on the show. It means a lot to me. You've been fantastic. All the best with Redelie Podcast and everything you're doing.
0: Well, thank you, Amy. As a treat to, to be here, I've been uh, enjoying watching uh, what you've been doing these last couple of years, and hope that I was able to provide uh, some uh, insight along the way to somebody who who needs it today. So, thank thank you for that opportunity.
2: And guys, that was Jeff Brown. How fantastic is he? When I first started talking about Chasing Dreams, I wanted to make sure I got interviewing right. I didn't think it was a skill I have or had at the time that was strong. And so I was looking into podcasters and who could help with interviewing and podcasting and, you know, Jeff's name came up. And so looked into him, we reached out and we talked and he gave me so much information and I saw him at workshops talking about interviewing skills and, you know, He's a big part of why Chasing Dreams is what it is today and the interviewing skills I have here. So hopefully you guys got as much from that in inter- this interview as I did. And um, because he was he was just dropping knowledge left and right. So hopefully you guys caught all of that. If not, no worries. It is a podcast. Rewind back. Listen again. Or check out the show notes page over at Chasing Dreams slash episode Ninety-nine. That's episode 99. And guys, next week, we bring you episode 100. I know that was a little bit much, but I'm very excited. I'm so excited because not only are we into triple digits, but next week's guest is very important to me. And that's all I'm going to say. And so until next time, guys, keep chasing.
1: Thank you so much for listening to Chasing Dreams. Amy would love to connect with you and hear all about your pursuit of chasing your dreams. Connect with her on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram via at ChasingDreamsHQ. Or you can find Amy on Twitter at AmyJ21. That's A-I-M-E-E-J-2-1. Be sure to visit headquarters over at ChasingDreamsHQ.com for more inspiration, motivation, and resources to help with your own dream chase. We hope you'll join Amy next week. And until then, keep chasing.